0: Isaiah 48, starting at verse 12. Listen to me, Jacob, Israel, whom I have called. I am he. I am the first and I am the last. My own hand laid the foundations of the earth, and my right hand spread out the heavens. When I summon them, they all stand up together. Come together, all of you, and listen. Which of the idols has foretold these things? The Lord's chosen ally will carry out his purpose against Babylon. His arm will be against the Babylonians. I, even I, have spoken. Yes, I have called him. I will bring him and he will succeed in his mission. Come near me and listen to this. From the first announcement, I have not spoken in secret. At the time it happens, I am there. And now the sovereign Lord has sent me endowed with his spirit. This is what the Lord says, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, I am the Lord your God who teaches you what is best for you, who directs you in the way you should go. If only you had paid attention to my commands, your peace would have been like a river, your well-being like the waves of the sea, your descendants would have been like the sand, your children like its numberless grains, their name would never be blotted out nor destroyed from before me. Leave Babylon, flee from the Babylonians. Announce this with shouts of joy and proclaim it. Send it out to the ends of the earth. Say, The Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob. They did not thirst when he led them through the deserts. He made water flow for them from the rock. He split the rock, and water gushed out. There is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked.
1: Thank you very much, Dan. Uh, Do keep that open or in front of you if it's an electric version you've got, electronic version you've got, um, as we'll be going through it and it'll be much easier to follow. I'm just going to pray for us as we come to God's word. Let's pray together. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for just uh, how much of your heart and your uh, desires and your will we see revealed to us in this book of Isaiah, and we pray that that will open our eyes so that we enjoy your glory and find rest for our souls in your greatness we pray that in jesus name amen now i just realized in the first service there is nothing in this whole service planned to say about football which feels strange so here i am mentioning football it's on tonight some people think that's important that's all you're getting right in connect groups at the moment which are the communities that uh meet in homes or on zoom at the moment Um, in our church and if you're not in one we'd love you to be in one. Some of our groups are talking about and talking through a book that's basically called How to Talk About Jesus Without Being That Guy. So it's sort of like saying how do you share your faith in our culture without basically getting on everyone's nerves who doesn't want to talk to you. It's a really great book and I recommend it. And this week in our group we were talking about how the first step to that is to actually really listen to what people who aren't Christians are saying to you and answer the actual question they're asking. So instead of thinking, oh, where can I get something I want to say into this conversation, really develop the skill of hearing what people's objections are. As I've been trying to do that, as I've tried to do that over the years, one of the things that comes up most often when you're trying to listen is people saying uh, the church or a Christian or a group of churches has done something bad. What do we make of that? could have been that they've done something bad to me, or it could just be I've read in the news that sadly there's plenty of news around, which is the church doing something bad uh, in the world. You can see it reported. Now, how do we answer that? There's a few sort of what I might call like smart answers to that. One of the things people say is, well, in the last century, it was actually ideologies that didn't believe in God that committed the worst acts of violence in the world. And that's true. Uh, And I think it's a fine answer. I'm not sure it's the best apologetic ever to sort of say Christians have murdered slightly less people than communist Russia. It gets you some of the way, but not all of the way, does it, to the person considering. The other answer is to say, you know, part of this is just a narrative. So like if you turn on TV and you see a vicar or a priest in a TV drama, they're never the hero, are they? They're always like up to some sort of scheme against everybody. And maybe you're just taking in a cultural view that isn't quite right. But the truth is, when someone says that is a problem, they are right. (laughs) I mean, that is a problem. So we've been seeing in Isaiah that what we need, what the world needs, what we need to get through life, what we're made for, what we're created for is to know and enjoy what Isaiah calls God's glory. Glory is a strange word. We've used the image a few times of, like, the bigness and beauty and vastness of the sea. God's glory is everything about him that is right and reliable and good and pure. And everything about God is like compassionate to victims and cares for those who've been abused and is angry with abusers. Everything about God is like that. He is the perfect referee, which I've just realized another accidental football reference. There we go. He's the perfect referee, And therefore, it is a problem. If his name is attached to people who are not like that, when people use the power that comes from being identified with God to do things that are unlike him, it is wrong, it is problematic, it is bad. Dare I say it, in Isaiah, this book, it's a problem for God, if God has problems. So this title that's used throughout Isaiah, for God, is God is the holy one of israel that is god is perfectly holy but he's attached to this group of people and loves and cares for them well how can both of those things be true how can you be the one who's totally holy and right and also attached to these people who always are letting you down and doing wrong things and really actually pretty terrible things God sees that as a problem. This is what he says just in the verse before the one that we read today. He says, how can I let myself be defamed? How can we let this go on? That you're giving everybody the wrong impression of me. And in fact, leading up to this passage, the way through that, the way that that's been resolved, is the people being punished. Justice being done to them. That they receive what they deserve. That shows that God is holy But that's a problem, isn't it? That is a problem for me. So this whole thing is a problem. It's a problem for those bad Christians who do things. It's a problem for God. How does he identify with us? It is actually a problem for me too because I should be reflecting God's glory and I should be bringing his joy to the world. And I don't do that. And even in the name I call myself, Christian, Jesus' name is in there. So he's identified with me, not at all showing what he's like, and that's therefore a problem for me because we've seen the only way for God to show he's holy is to punish people like that, because how can he let his name be defamed? Now, these people were experiencing that. They were in this place called exile, which just meant they'd been punished by God by being thrown out of their country and enslaved by a different people. So this is a sort of rather alarming thought. We're really painted into a corner here. We're in trouble. The mission of God is for the world to see his glory, and that's what everybody needs, but the people he's entrusted that mission to are not glorious like him at all. It's a problem. Problem for God. (laughs) Problem for the bad Christians we don't like. Problem for me. And this is all set up so that God can say in this passage of Isaiah, that's why you need to listen to me. I don't mean me, I mean him. There's a problem here that only I, the God who made the world can solve. There's this verse Jesus says in the New Testament, apart from me, you can do nothing. I've been thinking about that verse recently because I think I've always basically kind of read it. as like apart from me, you can't do very much, but you know, you can have a go. But this is all set up to say to us, no, apart from him, apart from trusting God, there's nothing we can do. We are painted into this corner where he's holy, and so we aren't reflecting him. And so it's the first thing God says in this passage, verse 12, and onwards, listen to the God who knows. Look at what he says in verse 12. I actually love this verse. You could skip over it. Listen to me, Jacob, Israel, whom I have called. That's a reassuring start. A very reassuring start to you. Do you see, God doesn't consider it an option to abandon them. I mean, sometimes I like to think, if I was God, what would I do? Uh, It wouldn't be good for any of you, if I was God. And I think what I'd do in this situation would be like, okay, well, I'll glorify myself then. (laughs) You know, get rid of these pesky people who never do it right. That is not how God addresses them. Even in the midst of this failure, they are the people he has called and I do want to pause there and say, after that rather sort of downbeat start to this talk, some Christians are very much tortured by that. Have I messed up so badly that God doesn't want me anymore? Are there things I do or become, ways that I defame or shame him that mean he gives up on me? And the answer here in verse 12 is basically No. Definitely not. Still the people he's called, even after everything they've done. And I guess that's because the big picture here is this is about pointing to God's glory. God's glory being seen, and part of his glory is his faithfulness, his compassion to those who fail, his unbreakable commitments to people. There's no threat here that God will get sick of you. But he does say, but listen given that this situation is bad. And the thing he says we need to listen to in verse 13 is, remember who God is. He is the one who laid out the foundation of the earth. He is the one whose hand laid out the heavens. That action of looking after the universe, it's not in the past. He's still doing it today in verse 13. Listen, remember, I am he, the God who did that. Listen. That's the first step. How can God be seen for who he is when the people he's attached to are so rubbish? Well, listen and trust him to do it. You need to give up thinking there's something you can do to fix it by the way you are. You can't. That plan failed. But entrust it to God. The God who created the world out of nothing. He can get this. He can sort it. And can you see, in this amazing way even though we so fail to glorify God with our lives, if we do that, we're beginning to give God glory again. Even just by saying, I-, I can't sort this out, but there's a God who made everything and he can sort it out. God is being pointed to. He's being glorified. That's, that's what should be happening There have in recent months, whether you follow this or not, in the sort of Christian news been some terrible examples of the things I've been talking about recently. People treated in terrible ways by Christian leaders that, uh, you know, beyond bad to illegal and you know terrible. And what I've seen from some of the survivors of that terrible abuse, if they've gone public, is they've said basically I don't trust this person or this organisation or even this institution anymore. But let me tell you this, I trust God. God's big. He runs the universe, and it's best to hand my life to him. Isn't that so glorifying to God? Isn't that, you know, those people being heroes of our faith, really? But this isn't really about victims. This is about perpetrators. It's about people who know they have been a bad reflection of God. And when you feel like that, God calls you back to him. And he says, listen, I am big enough to sort this out. Without abandoning you, without crushing you, without leaving you behind and getting on with a different project, I am big enough. You know, look at the universe. I can deal with this. If you're a person who belongs to God... He can hold your failure. Well, that's all very well, but you might think it sounds a bit easy. You know, it's a start to say, just trust God with it, but feels a little bit like, oh, well, okay, but what actually is going to happen? Well, God says to these people stuck in exile in verses 14 and 15, I'm going to think of a solution none of you thought of. I'm going to bring this king, Cyrus it turns out his name is, and he's going to conquer the Babylonians and then you'll be free. And none of you would have thought of that. Remember when they were in exile there, this was like the power of the world. No one could have imagined it falling. And God says, I'm good at thinking up solutions you never could have thought of. And here's mine. No one could have thought told you it, another king's going to come out of nowhere and conquer them, which is actually what happened. And I think what we learn here is that God has a habit of doing that. If you know that you should glorify God with your life, but you know you don't, so you should receive punishment, let me tell you, someone totally unexpected is going to step in to solve that problem for you. It's stranger news what Christians say even than Cyrus, the foreign king, is going to conquer Babylon. I'm telling you today, in ancient history, there was a Palestinian traveling teacher who was executed like a criminal in the Middle East. He never held any important position. He hung out with down and Otz, but he will solve this problem for you. Weird, isn't it? But God says, that's the type of thing I do. I'm God. I bring weird solutions out of nowhere. Solutions you never could have predicted. And I'm going to bring someone out of somewhere that will bring glory to me and mean that you can still be my people. In fact, we think it's hard to tell. But it looks like in verse 16, that person speaks up. So someone else starts speaking in verse 16 and says, come near me and listen to this. I reckon that's this shadowy figure we've seen throughout Isaiah who's called in Isaiah the servant, who's constantly stepping in and saying, I'm going to solve the problems between you and God. So when God says, I'm going to solve the Babylon problem, the servant steps in and says, I'm going to solve the whole problem. God's given me his spirit to do that. We're so used to thinking about Jesus in that way if we're a Christian, aren't we? But do you ever think about how bizarre it is? How without God we'd never have thought of that. Be born as a person to take the rap for the bad things other people have done. What a God-like solution. And can I tell you that even... Secular people see this. I was reading this week about a guy called Douglas Murray. His picture should come on the screen. It's a sort of airbrush publicity shot. He's a bit less perfect looking than that in real life. And he is a sort of atheist, uh, commentator, gay, secular, totally uh, like that way, quite right wing. Um, And he has basically come to the point of saying, "Do you know, I've realized you can't actually run society without Christianity. Here's the article I was reading about him. Murray believes that Christianity is essential because secular people are incapable of creating an ethic that says people are equal. And definitely not one powerful enough, as powerful as saying human beings are created in the image of God. He noted that society after Christianity has three options abandon the idea that all human life is precious try and deal nailed on an atheist version that individuals matter. And if that doesn't work, there is only one place left to go back to faith, whether we like it or not. He says this, the sanctity of human life is a Jewish Christian notion, which might very easily not survive were Judaism and Christianity to disappear. Now can you think about how bizarre that is? Douglas Murray is like a wealthy 21st-century media commentator with an iPhone. He teaches in universities, he has books published. And here he is saying to the world, "Society will collapse if it isn't for this first-century Jewish, homeless preacher." So Godlike that, isn't it, to shame us. And our ideas of cleverness say, out of nowhere, we would have expected I bring the solution to your problem. Now, interestingly, Douglas Murray and his group of intellectuals, they say this, we've got to the stage of saying we need Christ, but I haven't yet got to the stage of saying I need Christ. Well, let me tell you, when faced with my failure and the failure of everyone else I know around me, I need Christ. I'm ready to say that. I'm ready for the glorious, happy, relaxing news that the God who unfurled creation is big enough to deal with all the failure that I can see and know. He intervened unexpectedly in history, weirdly in the person of Jesus Christ, his servant, who says, God's given me his spirit to do this. We need Christ, but today. You need Christ. You need Him. Give Him your failure. Trust God, who sent this strange, suffering person into the world to deal with your failure. How? I can't explain exactly the mechanics now. We'll be thinking about it later when we take communion. We need Christ. We can't be human without what He taught. But I need Christ. I need to trust him because I feel before God. Here's the second thing we see, much more briefly. Listen to the God who knows you. It was Robbie Williams who said about 20 years ago, it's a cultural reference for people of my age, uh, Robbie Williams said, no regrets because they don't work. Basically says there's no point in regretting the past because it doesn't help you move on. Well, I find that more easily said than done. Thanks, Robbie. Thanks, Robbie. Regret is a heavy burden to carry that you can't just shake off. Maybe you became a Christian later in life and you look back at your pre Christian life and think, oh, I wish I'd known what I know now then. Or maybe it's just that as a Christian you've made big messes and you wish you spend days now thinking, why, why did I do that? And Robbie Williams says, oh, no regrets, they don't work. It doesn't really seem to take the past seriously enough, does it? This next bit of the passage says regrets. They don't fix anything, but they do have a purpose. And I think the purpose of regrets is to solve what I call the church door problem. Here's the church door problem. You get up, you stand, one gets up, stands here, say to everybody, we are all in trouble with God and all we can do is trust Jesus. He is the only solution. I call you to trust in him. You Go to the church door and you say goodbye to people. And someone says to you, I really agree with what you said. We must all try to be better people. It's like, that's actually the exact opposite of what I said, but I'm not quite sure how to have that argument with you on the church door. So usually you just end up going, "Mm, yeah, thank you for coming. That's the church door problem. We hear this and we think what we're being told is, let's all try to be better. God is saying, you cannot solve this problem. What is a tool that will help you see that? regret. Think of what God says in verse 17 to 19. It should come up on the screen. These are worth reading in full, these verses. This is what the Lord says, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. I am the Lord your God, who teaches you what is best for you, who directs you in the way you should go. If only you had paid attention to my commands, your peace would have been like a river, your well-being like the wave of the sea. Your descendants would have been like the sand, your children like its numberless grains. Their name would never be blotted out nor destroyed from before me. I mean, that is a reminder of some pretty sad history, isn't it? God had said to them in the past, I will make you this amazing nation if you just follow the laws that I give you. And you always knew I was the God who was the Redeemer and for you, but you still didn't do it. I gave you a way to live that would have brought life and blessing, but you didn't do it. It feels like a strange thing to be brought up. It's like a bad best man speech, this. We're all going to get to go back to weddings soon. We'll probably all have to go about 50 million weddings, won't we, because everyone's had to put their wedding off. So we're going to hear a lot of best man speeches. Keep a little notepad, things to do and not to do. Not to do in a best man speech. I mean, you've all been there, haven't you? It's like Talk about ex-girlfriends. No, no, steer away. Tell funny stories about the time you and the groom got drunk and vomited in the street. No, grandparents here, don't tell that story. This feels like this is like this being dropped in, isn't it? God saying, I'm going to sort out the problem. You just need to trust me. Let's just go back and talk about how you failed in the past. How it could have been so good, but it wasn't. But I think God is addressing the church door issue we read that we have failed, and we think, yes, yes, I really must be a better person. And God is saying, that is not going to work. Consider the past. Yes, if only you had obeyed, but you didn't. Yes, if you'd lived a life up to now where you really treated God as the loving Heavenly Father He is, things would have been different, but they're not. Listen to the God who made heaven and earth and ask him for help. Now, there might be some application of this to you practically now. You may be someone who, to trust Jesus, you're having to deal with some very difficult and challenging cost of being a Christian. Something that trusting Jesus means you giving up. And this does say, God will only ever give commands that are good for you. That's what he's like. If he rescues you through sending his son, he's not going to just make up random commands that are bad for you. So it does say that. But really, this is saying beyond that, we all have regrets. We all can look back at the times we should have done what was right and we didn't. And God is saying, do think about those things so you will be pushed to come for help. Because we all hear this and we think, but I'm not that bad. I'm doing okay. And the path back to actually trusting God's goodness is for these people, painful regret. Third thing we see, listen to the God who brings freedom. Last year, when all of the Black Lives Matter protests were going on, there was a video circulating in the internet of some Christians slightly strangely um, sort of reenacting a bit of Lord of the Rings, but about racism. I don't know whether you saw it. Like standing on a stage and banging a stick on the stage and saying to racism, you shall not pass, which is a thing that Gandalf says in Lord of the Rings to Balrog or something. And it's, like, it's not exactly how racism works, is it? You know, you don't shout at racism and it goes away. It's like a bigger force than that. Your words don't have that effect of bringing freedom from racism. I think Isaiah must, uh, the people listening to Isaiah, must have felt the same way when they heard him say, verse 20, they're in exile in Babylon, enslaved by a foreign country, and and Isaiah says in verse 20, leave Babylon. Uh, Okay, if it was as simple as that, Isaiah... We might have done it a long time ago. More than that, if we do get out of Babylon, you know, we finally manage to sneak out of the country, we'll be in a desert. As I says in verse 21, God has that covered too. God's good at providing for people in deserts. So just leave. See what God's command is now that he is saying to listen to. It's not a command Sort of do this or behave this way or follow this law. The thing he wants us to listen to after building up his character and our failure, the thing he says, really listen to this is, you're free. The consequences of the bad things you've done, they're over. They're gone. Leave Babylon. You'll uh, have to, as you leave, sing about it. Hardly an onerous command, is it? it? says, that's my command now that I want you to listen, to listen to. You're free, and you need to enjoy and sing and yell about this brilliant freedom. And yet, as you do that, you're going to end up in some strange places, some deserts. But I've got a good track record of doing miracles for people in deserts. So come and do it anyway. Your regrets, they show you you need to come to God and trust him. When you come to God with your regrets and failures, what does he say? This is the scandal of the gospel. He says, you're free from the consequences of that. Go and sing the song of your freedom. That's life now. And unlike Christians buying a stick on a stage or Isaiah himself, God does have the power to say that. We're going to see next week with Jack how it is that God's servant is able to say that to us. For now, I just want to tell you it's true. God sees that you don't glorify him. God knows the regrets of the mess that you've made. God says, but be free from any punishment of your sin. Life is totally different now. You know, the New Testament talks about becoming a Christian is like dying and coming back to a new life. This is the type of thing it means. It's like that thing where you you know you don't follow a command and you feel bad and you feel regret and you try and follow a command again and then you feel bad and feel regret. That you're in that circle. That life isn't just sort of you know gone. It's dead. Exile is over. You're free. If you trust Jesus. Free from that to just sing the song of freedom. That's your life now. You go out into the world singing, pointing, rejoicing, the Lord has saved me. And yes, you'll make some strange decisions and end up in some strange places if you live that life of obedience to God, but God is good at doing stuff like bringing water out of rocks. He'll be with you Watering your life by his spirit providing for you helping you along the way as you go with him singing about freedom I love the way God builds it up. He's like remember the way Remember the way You never used to do anything right Yeah I remember that It's like well, you're free of that now go and sing about it, it Might seem a bit easy It wasn't easy for Jesus, who actually did the work in our place, and we'll be thinking about that when we take communion, but in a sense, it is actually very easy for us. The problem is accepting the freedom rather than God's actually asking us to do anything very hard. But maybe you're thinking, "Ah, hold on a minute, the bad things I have done do still have consequences. I'm not free from all of the bad results of the bad things I've done. I'm living with them every day. I I get you, I get you. But that's why we have this wonderful word, redeem. When you trust God, when you take the freedom he's offering, he promises that he will make good, bring good out of even the very worst things that you have done and the very worst things that have been done to you that is the scandal of this, of what we call God's grace. God makes that offer to redeem you and the people who've done terrible things to you. So is this what we say when the terrible things that people do defame God? Is this what we believe when we do things that point away from God? We say there is a God in heaven who loves justice and hates being defamed, but he doesn't want to let you go no matter how bad you are, so he sent his son into the world who perfectly points to him, and that means, scandalously, the worst of us, the worst of them, whoever they are to us, can be redeemed. Redemption is always possible. The story of the church is the worst people who deserve punishment singing a song of freedom to point to God, that is it. And so he invites me, invites you, invites those people to a life which is walking through the world, not wondering if I'm good enough all the time, but saying, and living, enjoying, expressing that the Lord redeems people like me. And he looks after us in the places where that story takes us. God builds all of this up to say, listen, listen to me. But when we listen, what's the thing he's saying is? Through Jesus, you're free. Go sing that song. Let's pray. Announce this with shouts of joy and proclaim it. Send it out to the ends of the earth. Say, the Lord has redeemed his servant, Jacob. Lord, we pray, please, whatever we're facing in terms of our failure, the failure of people who bore your name towards us, we pray for that work of your servant to be so real to us that we get freedom, that we sing the song of freedom, that we have that spirit-filled watering of our lives as we walk through the places you take us. And we pray now as we remember Jesus' work for us, the servants' work in our place where we feel to glorify you. Please feed us with him in this desert we're walking through so that we go out to the world singing the song of what you're like. And, oh, Lord, we pray for an enjoyment of that glory. Rest for our souls in that glory. We pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen.